Today we conclude our summer teaching series, Letters to Timothy. In these final, very personal remarks that Paul imparts to his fellow worker in the faith, we will discover something very useful for our own lives. Adversity is a life experience that's common to all people. And when the heat of adversity comes, what we tell ourselves about God will either stimulate faith or incite doubt and discouragement. The scripture reading today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. I will say this about John. Uh, just He was never one to put on airs. When he stood up here to teach, he was in shorts. You guys will remember that, even in January. And uh, he had a great big smile, and we could say that his life was always interruptible. And uh, he loved the Bible. In fact, he, he had a, a custom cover on his Bible. He, he took the word Bible, and it was turned into an acrostic, and it said this, basic instructions before leaving earth. And uh, in, in his, his life bore witness to the fact that, that he followed the instructions that were contained in this book. And that's why the passage we're going to look at this morning uh, will have just several verses that will be so characteristic of John's life. This summer, we've been in a, a series on Paul's letters to Timothy, his young protege in the faith. And uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can turn with me to 2 Timothy Chapter 4, scholars are in agreement that Paul uh, sent this letter sometime between 64 and 67 A.D. from the confines of a Roman prison. These are the last recorded words we have from the great apostle. And if you know anything about this time period, you know that a man by the name of Nero was emperor of Rome during this time, and under his leadership, persecution of, of Christians intensified and, and Paul realized that the end was drawing near. And so he pens this very personal letter to his apprentice in the faith. Uh, he's a man that he refers to elsewhere as his, as his true son in the faith. To the, to the church in Philippi, he says this about Timothy. He says, I have no one like him because as a son with his father... So he has partnered with me in the work of the gospel. So there's a very special bond between these two guys. And in these very um, personal final remarks that Paul imparts to his fellow worker in the faith, we will uncover something very useful for our own lives as well, something that's relevant to everyone here, whether you're, you're young or old or male or female or rich or poor. Because you see that there, there's, there's some things in life that are universal experiences, that they're common to all of us. And one of those common life experiences is adversity. You see, at one point or another, all of us will experience hardship and difficulties and pain. The storms of life will visit all of us. And when those seasons come, it's important that we look to God's Word and we follow the example that the Apostle Paul lays out for us here. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, especially if it's like a great doctrinal treatise, like the book of Romans, you might feel like you're in a lecture hall. Today, Paul's going to take us to the counselor's office, okay? So we're going to be in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. We'll read verses 6 to 18, beginning now in verse 6. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure has come. So he's not entertaining any illusions of future missionary travels. He knows that this imprisonment is the one that's going to end in martyrdom. And he goes on to say, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, let's just pause right here. This is, this is so intriguing. Because Demas wasn't a guy that went to church for a few weeks and then flaked out. Much like Timothy, Demas was a guy who had traveled with Paul. We know this because in Paul's letter to Philemon, he refers to to Demas as his fellow worker. When we read the letter to Colossians, we see that Demas is one of those guys that sends his greetings at the end of the letter. So he's a guy that's been around the faith for a bit. But what we see here is that that Demas turns out to be a fair-weather disciple. And when Paul says that that he was in love with the present world, he's not saying that he renounced the Christian faith and was apostate. All he's saying is that his desire for, for, for temporal things exceeded his love for eternal things. Demas became short-sighted. And let's just be honest. It, it, it's pretty easy to have our love grow for temporal things more than eternal things. There's not a lot of commercials out there that are encouraging us to love eternal things, right? And as a way of allowing God's word to come and to search our hearts right now, Let's just let this passage take spiritual inventory of our lives. So I want us to note the contrast in verse 8 and verse 10. So we see that our hearts are going to be pulled in one of two directions. Our affection is going to gravitate one of two ways. Either it's going to be verse 8, and we're going to love the appearing of Christ, or it's going to be verse 10. And much like Demas, we're going to love the present world. So, there, so there's this old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Maybe some of you remember this. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That, that's what should happen. It should be more verse 8 than verse 10. And, and I hope that's the case for all of us. And if you look at these verses and you think, gosh, you know what, um, you know, my, my affections are a little bit more wrapped up in the things of this world and the stuff this world has to offer and the pleasure this world has to offer, I, I just want you to know that it, it is not too late to change course. We'll see that as we continue reading now. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. This verse right here is such an encouragement. Mark is the same John Mark that appears in the book of Acts. The same Mark that in the middle of of Paul and Barnabas' very first missionary travels, he bails. He bails in the middle of the thing. He he does what Demas does here. And, And Paul is so disappointed that when it comes time to launch out on their second missionary travel, he is adamant that Mark's not coming with him. 
And maybe, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you feel like there was a time in your life where you look back and you know that, gosh, you know, I, I disappointed God or I, I disappointed my friends in the faith. Don't let that define you. Because what we see here is this, this, this incident doesn't define Mark. Paul says, get him and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Not just useful, he's, he's very useful. And, and what we see here when we look at Demas and then we look at Mark is that when it comes to the, the race of life, our lives are going to be far more defined by how we finish than how we start. That's true, isn't it? We're going to be far more remembered by how we finish than how we start. Just you know, think of somebody like Brian Williams or, or Bill Cosby. Guess how those guys are going to be remembered? How they finished. And, and, and so if, if you inventory your life right now and you realize that you're not running the race that you want to run, it is not too late to change course. God has not given up on you. Today, you can just ask him. You can say, God, will you, will you come and will you change my affections? And will you help me run the race in such a way as to win the prize? Our passage continues. We see this. Tychius, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So how should we as believers deal with adversity? Let's observe three important truths from this passage. And the first truth is this. Remember, the cross comes before the crown. The cross comes before the crown. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow me. The, the call to discipleship is a call to live a life of self-denial. Paul said elsewhere, he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When, when Jesus calls us to come and follow him, he bids us to put to death our own agenda. So we're no longer living to maximize our own pleasure or our own comfort or our own status or our own glory. And when we look at, we look at verse 6 and we see that Paul says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure, that's sacrificial language. He's saying that he's taken up his cross. But what happens when we read on? He's looking forward to something, isn't he? Did anybody catch what it is? He says, now there's in store for me what? What word? The crown. The crown of righteousness. And is that just for Paul? No. It's for all of us who have longed for his appearing. And so this is a biblical pattern. We've got cross, then crown. The, the call to discipleship is a, is a call to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. And when we think about the path that Jesus walked, it's the same pattern. 
Hebrews 12, 2 comes to mind. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the what? The cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In order to handle adversity when it comes our way, we need to realize this. It's important that we remind ourselves that it's cross time, then crown time. Because it's, it's so easy to, to accidentally buy into a false prosperity gospel. I say accidentally because nobody does this on purpose, right? It's not like, oh yeah, today, let me think. Uh, I'm going to go to the grocery store, and then I'm going to pick up some things from the cleaners. And oh yeah, then I'm going to buy into some false teaching, right? No, no, nobody does that, right? This happens inadvertently. It happens accidentally. But, but it's so easy to happen. It's so easy for these false ideas to, to worm their way into our thinking. And the false teaching is essentially this, that, that if I do everything God's way, that I can experience crown time without any cross time. Now, we know that doesn't sound right. So, so we don't message it to ourselves like that. Rather, the myth that we tell ourselves, it's, it's, it's subtler. And it goes like this. It's like, well, if I just live a good life and I do right by others, then God's going to make sure that I never experience any pain or hardship. Essentially, we deceive ourselves into thinking that a relationship with God is somehow like some kind of quid pro quo arrangement. And we say, okay, God, I'll go to church. I'll take my kids to youth group. I'll even put a little bit in the offering plate. And then you'll make sure that, uh, that, that I never lose my job, that, uh, that, that my kids never go down a wayward path, that uh, my health will stay good, and the transmission will never go out in my car. And, and you know, we, we can chuckle at that a little bit, but essentially, like, that's what it is. It's, to put it really bluntly, it's, God, uh, here's, here's the arrangement. If I behave a certain way... You're, you're now thereby obligated to respond in a way that's going to be advantageous to my material prosperity. It, it, and there's several problems with that way of thinking. For one, it's not true of reality, is it? So, so some of the godliest people I know have experienced adversity, and I bet that's true for you too, isn't it? Think of the godliest people you know. Has there been some suffering in their life? Let's think about all the disciples and St. Augustine and John Calvin and Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and even our friend John Williams. Guess what was true of their lives? Adversity. So that's the first problem. The second problem with this view is it, it reduces our relationship with God to a transaction. Like our relationship with God is based on our performance, but it's not. It's based on His grace. A third problem is that it denies the reality that God is often glorified in our suffering. A fourth problem is, is it obscures the reality that it's often our, our, our hardship, our suffering, that draws us closer to God so that we experience more of Him. And, and a fifth problem is that there's no scriptural support. Like, th there's no foundation for this in the Bible. You know, there, there are many wonderful promises in Scripture, promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you, or cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
But you know, there, there's other promises in Scripture. Promises that aren't quoted as often, but they're still part of God's Word. For instance, Jesus said this in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. How do you like that one? Th- that's not a precious promise, is it? But he does go on to say this. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But let's, let's just think about that for a minute. If Jesus said we would have trouble, why would we think that we could somehow insulate ourselves from it? Or what about the promise that's revealed in 2 Timothy 3.12? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're probably not going to see that one on a Lifeway greeting card anytime soon. But it's in the Bible. And what we see in Scripture is that hardship and adversity are normal parts of the Christian life. And if there's anyone who could have said, God, come on. I did just what you said, and this shouldn't be happening to me right now. It would have been the Apostle Paul. He, he was a faithful disciple, and that didn't shield him from adversity. When he writes this letter, the letter that we're reading now, let's see, he's in prison. He's been wronged. Uh, he's without his stuff. He's abandoned by his friends, and he doesn't have his cloak, and that's what he would have used to keep himself warm or as a blanket to sleep in at night. And I just want us to realize that that wasn't because Paul didn't pray the right way or that he lacked sufficient faith. God doesn't promise to shelter us from adversity, but he does promise to see us through it. The joy that God wants to give us isn't a joy that comes because of the the absence of adversity. It's a joy that comes in spite of adversity. It's a joy that allows us to say, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So when adversity comes our way, when the storms of life befall us, the first thing we need to remember is that the cross comes before the crown. The second truth that we see revealed in this passage is that we shouldn't doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. When the storms of life come crashing down and when tragedy strikes and when pain is our companion, we can be tempted to ask ourselves, where is God? Like, is he even aware this is going on? Often when I talk with people who are in a difficult season, I hear that question. And you know what? We can even take it a step further. We can can up. Not only do we ask ourselves, where is God? But we can say, is God even there? Like, we can question his very existence. And if there's anyone who might have had grounds to do that, it was the Apostle Paul. Following Jesus has landed him in the subterranean Mamertine prison. It was essentially a dungeon. So mud and dust coated his existence. Alexander the the coppersmith has done him great harm. Everyone's deserted him. You think Paul might have written this. Well, God must either be oblivious or indifferent to what's happening to me because, like, this isn't fair, right? 
But he doesn't do that. We see that in this dark time, he doesn't discount God's involvement in his life. He doesn't doubt in the darkness what he knew in the light. When Paul reflects on how Alexander has wronged him, he doesn't say, well, you know, Timothy, God isn't as all-knowing or all-seeing as I once thought. He still stakes his confidence on what God has revealed. And so he reminds himself and he reminds Timothy of what God promised. He quotes from Deuteronomy 32. And he reassures himself that this whole situation has not been lost on God. And he says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He keeps pointing back to God. He keeps clinging to him. Look with me also at verse 17. When, when Paul thinks about how his first offense and how everyone abandoned him, this might have been opportunity for Paul to question God's goodness. Yet Paul says this. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. His circumstances don't define his faith. His faith defines his circumstances. A few years ago, I read a book by a Christian author named Paul Tripp, and I came across this quote. He said this. He said, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. You like that? I'll, I'll say that again. No one is more influential in your life because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. And there, there's some truth to that, isn't there? So what happens as we go through life is we're constantly analyzing, we're constantly interpreting what's happening to ourselves, and, and, and we're, we're telling ourselves things about our past, about the future, about what's going on in the present. And, and what we're telling ourselves is informing our perspective about life. And, and, and when the heat of adversity comes, what we tell ourselves about God is either going to stimulate our faith or it's going to incite doubt and discouragement. And when we're in a dark time, we, we, we shouldn't entertain ideas about God that aren't true. We can't tell ourselves that just because the circumstances are bleak that that means God is distant. We need to do what we see Paul doing here and reassure ourselves of what we were certain of when we were in the light. Here's what we see Paul doing. He, he reminds himself that God is standing beside him and that his situation is not lost on him. And, and that's what we should do. So that's, that's the second point. We can't, we can't doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. And this brings us to our third truth for dealing with adversity. When we're buffeted by difficulty and hardship, it's important that we dwell on what is to come. We must dwell on what is to come. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing in verse 18. He says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's in the midst of this unimaginably difficult situation. He's in prison. He's in a dungeon. He's just been recounting, like, you know, Things aren't exactly looking up for him. He's pretty sure this is going to end in martyrdom. And he doesn't dwell on that temporary situation. Instead, he says, oh, you know, and oh, by the way, God's going to rescue me, and he's going to usher me into his heavenly kingdom. He doesn't get bogged down in his temporary plight. And when adversity strikes, I've found that there's this tendency to become nearsighted. 
to, to, to focus on our immediate situation and to dwell on that. But it's important that we poke our heads up and we take inventory of the big picture. Elsewhere, Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, Therefore, let us fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. And we see that Paul is practicing what he preaches. He's looking at the, at the big picture. He's reminding himself of what's in store. And when I think about what's to come, I'm convinced that, that none of us, when we get to heaven, we're going to go and we're going to seek God out and we're going to say, you know, God, I, I've got a bone to pick with you. God, I, I've got some grievances. God, I just, you know, I, I'm convinced you're not fair because when I was down on earth, you know, I, I never met Mr. Wright. Or I, I experienced a prolonged season of unemployment. Or I was born into a messed up family. I, I don't mean to minimize anyone's suffering. I, I know the pain is real. And, and, and I'm not saying that when we, we experience pain that we, we shouldn't have heartache. All I want us to realize is that one of the ways that God wants to comfort us when we're in the middle of the suffering and we're in the middle of the pain is by reminding us of what's to come. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how God's going to work it all out, but he gives us this picture of what's to come. We find it in the book of Revelation. John gives the apostle John a vision of what's in store, and he records it like this. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what's to come. And in the midst of the hardship, Paul was able to deal with adversity because he knew that. And the reason that Paul had such confidence that that was what was going to be his future was because he had placed his faith in Jesus Christ, the one who's conquered death, the one who has the power to transfer us from the dominion of darkness and into his glorious throne, his glorious kingdom, and the way that God ushers us into his kingdom centers on the person of Jesus Christ. God's plan to reconcile people to himself centers on Jesus. And the reason that Paul could have such confidence and such assurance that he was headed to that kingdom was because he had placed his faith in Jesus. And if you've never done that, that's something that you should do today. And you can do it today. And the reason you would want to do it is because we, we recognize that our sin separates us from God. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that's true deep down. We know that even on our best day, that there's pride and there's selfishness, that there's envy lurking below the surface. And we know that we need a Savior. See, the good news of Jesus Christ is good news because of the way 
that we, we, we find ourselves in God's kingdom isn't by trying harder. It's not through our own moral effort. It's on account of what Jesus has already did. You see, the central message of the Bible isn't do, do, do. It's done, done, done. The Bible puts it like this. For Christ died once, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So Jesus bore the penalty for our unrighteousness. And when we cry out to him, he clothes us in his perfect righteousness. You see, eternal life isn't something that we have to to go and achieve for ourselves. It's something that, that we receive by grace through faith. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And if you've never made that decision, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you bow your head with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your promises. I thank you for the good news that you give us. And I pray right now for those who are in special need of encouragement or comfort from you. I pray that that by the power of your spirit and through your inspired word, that you would draw near to them and that you would open the eyes of their heart so that they might see your incomparably great power for us who believe. And for those here who haven't believed yet, would you come and would you illumine their minds so that they would see your truth for what it is? And if that's you, and right now, you want to ensure that one day that Jesus will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom, you can do so. Just say a prayer like this. God, I surrender to you. I know I need a Savior, and I thank you for sending Jesus to be my Savior. And I choose now to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for making me a part of your family. Amen.